0: its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. We
1: have arrived at our third and final discussion, which will launch us into a conversation about various aspects of community health. At first glance, of course, this theme may seem rather disparate from the previous two we've explored today. But on closer inspection, the connections become, I think, much clearer. For example, climate change impacts on safety, livelihoods, and the environment are contributing to, as one of our previous panelists mentioned, declining mental health in populations of all ages, genders, and backgrounds in all parts of the world. Plus, more intense and frequent heat waves in recent months have had a noticeable impact on human health in the Pacific Northwest and the regions divide between urban and rural communities translates to somewhat of a divide in access to health services of all kinds. These challenges tend to compound for vulnerable and marginalized communities, regardless of urban suburban or rural location. Now, because a person's health is such a personal matter, the development of strategies to overcome these challenges must be informed by local culture and community values. And if they're not, well, even the most promising scientific solution or technology is only as useful as its deployment within a community in need. That's why we've populated this final panel with the two innovators you're about to meet because their work is so deeply informed by the communities that they serve. Even so, these community-specific solutions remain translatable given similar challenges and values in other parts of the world, such as the American Midwest, Canada, Europe, or India. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. On the rural and children's health side of the conversation today, we are joined by Amanda Martin North, Executive Director at the Center for Rural Health Innovation. And for the mental health portion of the discussion, we have Ruth Verhey. International Lead for Friendship Bench. So Amanda, would you start us off by introducing us to the Center for Rural Health Innovation and its Health Schools program?
2: Sure, thank you for having me today. Uh, I'm Amanda North and the Executive Director for Center for Rural Health Innovation, which is a nonprofit. We're actually located in North Carolina and our mission is to improve access to healthcare services using technology. Um, And so, 10 years ago, when we were founded, that meant introducing telehealth to rural parts of Appalachia, um, which was kind of fun, uh, because there were a lot of people who um, had never participated in a video conference of any kind. FaceTime was not as ubiquitous as it is now. Uh and certainly the pandemic has um increased the number of people who are familiar with telehealth, but 10 years ago we did not have that advantage. So what we've what we've done is we've created this program called Health E Schools with a little E because it's electronic and so that's cute. Um and what we've done there is is create a program that we offer to the public schools and in our area that allow the school nurse to connect a student via telehealth to a nurse practitioner. Uh, Who in North Carolina can uh, evaluate, diagnose, prescribe, um, but basically get care to children where they are at school uh, without transportation needs and and get them back to class as soon as possible. And more on that, but that's the short version.
1: Amazing. That's a great start. Thanks, Amanda. And I'm going to turn to you now, Ruth. I'm hoping you could start by giving us a summary of the work happening at friendship bench.
3: Yes, thank you Aubrey and thank you so much for having me and I'm so excited to hear all the other panelists, so wonderful. So I'm working with the Friendship Bench and the Friendship Bench is a psychological intervention coming from Zimbabwe and we are um, we're helping people who suffer from mild to moderate symptoms of depression or anxiety and in our setting in Zimbabwe we would call that translated is thinking too much which I think makes a lot of sense to most people. So from the location point of view, we are living in a low income country, which has a huge lack of mental health professionals, which means we have found a way of bringing mental health care and evidence based mental health care to people on a primary health care level. By working with a group of women who are employed as health promoters, and often we get called the grandmother program because these women sort of grew old on the job because they've been employed in the 80s or 90s of the last century and have just a ton of experience and and are very known and in the setting in in the sub-Saharan Africa context elderly women are very revered and respected for their knowledge. And, and so they have the, the authority to literally walk up to someone and say, please, do you wanna to talk to me? And um, as you can see in the bottom right, and, and I just wanted to bring you this a little bit. So we this is a typical scenario of our talks um, therapy happening on a bench outside a primary healthcare clinic. And due to the pandemic recently, more and more in the communities as well, And we also offer um, an income generation project, like a peer led support group, as you can see at the top right, where women make bags or recently we explored a little bit more with doing gardening um, to just enhance uh, just meals by by having more vegetables handy. And um, I think I'll stop here. Thanks.
1: Thank you. I am excited to get into some of what you mentioned in more detail. So once again, hold that thought more to come. Uh, so now we begin the questions, of course, um, Amanda, I'm going to start with you. How does the telemedicine specifically this telemedicine based school health center model, improve access to health care for children in these rural communities?
2: That's a great question and it's a key part of uh, of how my organization came to innovate in this space. School based health centers have been around for at least 25 years, maybe longer in the US and they. There are thousands of them. It's a well established program, but (laughs) a school based health center uh, is not an inexpensive project. It's literally a a doctor's office, a clinic located or co located at a school. And, um, you know, in the, the best practices, when you're setting up a school based health center is to select a school with at least a couple of 1000 kids 2000 or more students um, to try to make it viable to have enough. Patients to serve to make it a viable program well, in the 1st, county in North Carolina in the 1st, school district that we wanted to start our program and there are only 2000 kids in the entire school district spread out over 7 schools in a whole big county with a big mountain in the middle of it. So, not super practical uh, to select where to put that that you know, building. So we didn't do any buildings. What we did is we took the. The most expensive part of our staff, which is the nurse practitioner. They're well paid, and they should be they're very smart folks (laughs) Uh, and and we share that nurse practitioner service. As needed, and we never have lag time. We don't have downtime because our nurse practitioners are seeing patients wherever they need to be. And it's all accomplished using telehealth. Telehealth is also not new. This may shock people, but it did not get invented 2 years ago or a year and a half ago when the pandemic started. It's been around for a long time. Um, and has its roots in Alaska and in uh, other more remote territories. So, so, Appalachia is not really hard um, for telehealth to happen. And we were able to piggyback on schools already having good Internet access and we were able to use that bandwidth to connect our devices. Um, And so, so we we've shared. We've shared the most expensive staff. We partner with the schools to link up with the school nurses so they can use a tiny fraction of their time to facilitate. uh, And we meet the needs where they are.
1: That makes a lot of sense uh, when you explain it that way and also makes me think of other places where this could be really relevant. Um, But I'll leave that to our audience members to think about as well. Ruth, I'm going to turn to you now. I think you began alluding to this in your introduction, but now you have a little bit more time to expand why is the engagement and deployment of these community health workers, known as you mentioned in Zimbabwe as health promoters, such a critical part of your approach at your organization?
3: Okay, thank you for that question. So so like I said, um, we have a severe lack of health professionals or actually a lot of professionals on any level. And the need for mental health care is high all over the world with no exemption I think the WHO speaks of one in four will have a lifetime prevalence of of like a depression at some stage and and so we want to help to bring care to people where they are and where they where they are needed and these these community health workers are um, deployed in in a lot of low and middle income countries to do tasks so the idea is they get trained specifically for to do a certain task and they get supervised and and, um, the mental health idea came in. So we offer problem solving therapies. We train them um, and, and give them the counseling skills and the psychoeducation skills. So they actually make that difference in people's knowledge about mental health, which is highly stigmatized still in Zimbabwe, but also in many other parts of the world. And I think we all have to contribute to to helping uh, people having more knowledge. Uh, That makes total sense. I'm actually
1: gonna follow up with you before jumping back to Amanda. And I wanna talk about, um, I think the last thing that you mentioned in your introduction when you were pointing to the picture of women engaging in hands-on activities. So after completing talk therapy, Friendship Bench participants are invited to join what's effectively a a peer support group called Circle Kubatana Tose. Uh, please correct me if I pronounce that wrong Um, but this serves to simultaneously provide sense of belonging and income generation opportunities so I was wondering if you can talk about how women in particular have benefited from these groups
3: yes wonderful so we really are all about empowering people so if, if you learned problem solving once you're supposed to be able to use it again and again and that idea of bringing people together and i'm sure the audience can resonate with that is we all seem to have learned to distrust people more and more so that's hence that idea of we need to create this belonging and trust and these groups um create a sense of safety like we've been through the same kind of interventional program, if you want to call it that way. We also live in the same community. We might have known each other before, but maybe not well enough. And now we are meeting and sharing our stories and doing something together. So this this like we started out making bags out of recycled plastic. And that was a great hit because we we got these stories of people saying, I did not know what to eat and what how to feed my children today. But then I made a bag and I sold it and and then I had money to feed the children. Like those little things, It's it's very it's very kind of small stuff. And one thing that always impresses me is that the trust in these groups is big enough to engage in what we call mini lending schemes. So where we say everybody gives a dollar this week and maybe Amanda gets it and, and next week we all give it and I get it and, and and that only works if people come back, of course, and contribute continuously to these to these groups. And that brings people together and that's how women who still bear the the brunt of the housework and the care for children, um, how they can make a difference in a, in a country which has a huge uh, unemployment rate.
1: Absolutely. No, that's that's really showing how you can connect the challenges of your community to tangible solutions um, that are relevant to what that community is experiencing, which is, I think, a, a recurring theme throughout today's program. So I love seeing that here. Um, Amanda, I'm going to turn back to you now. Um, and ask you to explain how facilitating healthcare access in schools not only benefits the students, but it benefits their mothers, especially economically or career wise.
2: Sure, absolutely. So, 1 of the reasons that school based services make so much sense is that in places like the community where I live, the only public transportation that's available is the yellow school bus. So, we don't have, we don't have city bus lines. We don't have. Uh, scheduled transportation of any kind, um, so, and and there's no Uber, (laughs) you know, so, so, even if you could afford to pay for it, there's not an option. So, if you don't have a personal vehicle or someone to come get you, you're not going anywhere. Okay. So, just to put context around what it means to not have transportation in rural areas, and you can't, you can't walk 7 miles into town. That's not practical. This is not a few blocks down the road to get what you need. This is a big deal that said. Uh, transportation can be a a big challenge, which ties up directly with those moms. Okay. So if you have, if you have a household where, um, there's only 1 car and whoever has the best job gets to drive the car to work. There may not be transportation for 12 hours a day. That job might be an hour away and it's a 10 hour shift. Well, the car is going to be gone for a long time. So all of a sudden you're only. Um, opportunity to receive medical care is at the emergency room, um, during the night. So, that's not great, especially for non emergent things. That's not good for any of us um, in the community or the hospital or anywhere else. Um, for a mom who has a job. We know that a lot of moms end up being that primary parent that lead parent. There's a lot of terms around that. So, even if they're not a single parent, they may be the 1 and quite often. This is still the case. They're the 1 who, if someone has to leave work to go get a child from school, it's the mom. Uh, there's lots of dads who do it. I don't mean to knock on dads, but we all know it's still mostly the mom. Well, that makes it hard for mom to keep her job. I mean, if she needs to leave today with no notice. To go pick up her child in the middle of the school day she may not get to choose her hours next week she may not get hours next week that might be the difference in having to work all weekend or having to work every evening shift next week and miss every dinner with their children with the family the next week it's also about hard choices between not getting overtime not getting a full paycheck um, but also incurring the cost of seeking medical care, whether it's a copay or gas in the tank. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of burdens that fall time wise, employment wise. Um. And just being employable, if you're unreliable, if you're perceived as unreliable because you have so many household responsibilities, it doesn't matter that that's a protected class or anything else. I mean, there's legal repercussions, sure, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is being a reliable team member on a staff or not. Right, right.
1: And I wanna follow up with you um, because it's not just the mothers and the students who are benefiting here. Um, because you employ family nurse practitioners instead of pediatricians, you are able to offer this telemedicine service to anyone employed by a participating school district. So that includes teachers and maintenance staff and bus drivers and more. So can you talk about why this has been important and the impact it's had?
2: So so you got that exactly right. And and this has been a really big deal um, and maybe in a slightly unexpected way. Now, the obvious way is uh, all those folks need health care too, right? And for a school teacher, I mean, think about a school teachers hours and think about a traditional doctor's office hours. They sort of exactly overlap. So, it's always going to be hard for a teacher to go have even the most minor ailment looked after. But if he or she, uh, back to those women, because so many teachers are women, <laughs> uh, has a, um, a planning period or a lunch. They can swap with somebody. Or right after the buses leave and they can slip in um, and they connect with the school nurse and get seen right quick. Um, A school, a a teacher not missing work means that an entire classroom full of children did not miss out on a day of learning. Uh, Whether that's every section of English or math, or if it's the entire day for the 3rd grade that didn't watch movies, they actually continued in their curriculum. We all remember what substitutes were like. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so that's the obvious one, right? Like keep the keep the teachers there. Um, the the less obvious is that a new program like school based telehealth, where you're changing the modality of care, it's telehealth instead of in person, and where you're changing the location of care, it's at school and not in a clinic. Um, that takes a lot of mm, finesse to get that accepted in a community. And so, you know, who's trusted at a school, not always the principal, and it might be the school nurse if a family actually knows the school nurse, but I'll tell you who's trusted is the teacher. It's the bus driver, the teacher, even the cafeteria lady, if she goes to your church or she's your grandma's friend. And so by having staff members in the schools have positive experiences with our service, they talk about it. And they suggest it and they say, Oh, that's too bad that you've had that cough all week. I've been listening to you cough. Have you heard about the Health schools program? I used it. It was great. You should check it out. I'll call your mom and tell her about it. So, word of mouth, very interesting.
1: Ruth, I want to get back to, you now. it seems like, especially in this health sense, it really can't be underscored enough. The importance of understanding the needs of the community and whatever that community is. Ruth, especially demonstrated well in the photos during your introduction, you explained that a unique part of your approach is delivering this problem solving therapy outside of health clinics. And this includes on benches within the community, as you mentioned. So why is this? approach effective in the communities where you operate, and how does it intersect with that stigma that you mentioned, whether it be stigma associated with mental health or stigma associated with going to
3: health clinics themselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So um, prior to the pandemic, um, the benches were actually almost like behind the building um but they have moved over so so they're more visible now and in most communities at least around the three cities where we first sort of scaled up a couple of years ago um it is more known and people have learned about the friendship bench um so so the community bit has really happened due to the pandemic and has been very welcomed i think because also it's easier you have to imagine a primary healthcare clinic doesn't give appointments so uh people everybody will go there early in the morning and wait until it's their turn which in some form was great for us because we could then um teach our our health promoters to give health talks and mention mental health already and hopefully reach a few years um, but of course that is it's a little bit more difficult for people than to go and turn right away to someone and say i want to talk so um what helps with the community base is that it happens at people's places basically Um, Which also means it's a little bit less reach on that level, but it's a little bit more targeted. As I said, these community health workers really know their communities and they know the people. And we're doing a huge push at the moment to fulfill um, like a health policy that basically says HIV care must have mental health care. And just for everybody, Sub-Saharan Africa is still the area with the highest HIV prevalence globally. And there's huge links to um to ill mental health i should say and and a a big demand um and that's not only hiv related that's also poverty driven of course and um like violence we consistently come up with gender-based violence as as being reported by clients for instance um so so yeah that's Really
1: informative. Um, I want to flag that we have just about 5 minutes left in this session. I still have a couple of questions for each of you. So we have officially entered our speed round for this panel. Um, Amanda, I'm going to go back to you. While your organization I know is compatible with insurance, Medicaid, et cetera. I understand that you will not turn away children if their families cannot afford to pay. And I was hoping you could just explain why it was important for you to adopt this model as you were developing out your program.
2: Absolutely, and um, equity in the delivery of services is a key tenant of school based health care. We didn't make that up. That's that's overarching for school based health centers uh, in their history. And it's, it's really critical because I'm not there to make money from students, right? Um, I, I like to compare it and I'll I'll go fast, but I like to compare it to the, um, the yearbook. Right? So, so in us schools, everybody has their picture taken uh, and the pictures all go into the yearbook. But you can only get those pictures and you can only get a copy of the yearbook if you can afford to pay for it and it can be very expensive. Uh, So, so the yearbook company pretends like they're offering a service to the school and they're doing the school a favor by taking a picture of everyone, but you only get to play if you can pay. And that is not what we're about. It's really important to us that we're able to serve every single student. So if they have insurance, absolutely. We're going to send a claim to their insurance. If they don't have insurance. We have a very generous sliding fee scale, which generally results in a family, not getting a bill, Um, which, which lets us, this is where the sauce is. This is the secret sauce is that it lets us serve everybody. And we can, we can just not ask. We can just not ask if, I mean, if they, if they say they don't have insurance, we believe them. If they say they're not eligible for Medicaid, we don't ask them, gee, why not? Which is where we're able to serve our recent immigrant populations. We do have, you know, the meatpacking plant that has a huge number of families, or, of workers who are recent immigrants and their children all end up in one elementary school and we're there to serve them and we don't have to ask.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and the, the stories really make it hit home and, and make a lot of sense. So I appreciate that greatly. Um, Ruth, I'm going to jump back to you now. We're here because climate change impacts all different needs of society and of community and has these indirect impacts, even when they're where they're not necessarily obvious from the get go. I wanted to ask you, Ruth, how climate change is impacting your work or the needs of the people who use your services at Friendship
3: Bench okay thanks so we have actually branched out and are in the rural areas now as well and um sub-saharan africa is a region that has always been affected by the climate changes since it started many 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 years ago and um we've just had a few bad droughts so the rainy seasons were very uh, erratic and, and low in impact and and so the stressors on farming families here which are who are mostly subsistence farmers so it's it's really very small scale in in hectic areas um is of course massive and i think what i always like to say then what happens when a family lives of a small small scale subsistence farm they can maybe produce their own food but then there's no cash crop to sell there's no money coming in to pay school fees get medication get the the bare necessities that people need which means the family then is at financial risk of illness but we're talking about the equity thing again that's like whether that's mental health or or other illness and um as we all know mental health will fall off the 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 bench fast well other things have to be attended to and so we do want to absolutely bring in that idea of how we all have to promote mental health and help people to become resilient because the climate change effects will be felt even more here in the area and people do have to adapt to other ways of doing agriculture and find find ways of coping
1: A great way to end this part of the session. I I want to stop by or end by giving each of you the floor for 30 more seconds, your final takeaway for our audience, whether it be a piece of advice or how what you're doing could be translated to other communities, whatever you'd like to say in terms of final thoughts in your last moment with us here today. Uh, Amanda, feel free to start.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm so happy to be here and share with this audience what we do and how we do it. Just a little bit of it. Um, and what I would say is that uh, this is not a wheel that needs recreating. Uh, there's already a blueprint out there and a framework out there. So, if you or your school district or your hospital system, or whoever is interested in making something like this happen in a rural or suburban or urban area it translates really well and it is already being done all across the country so google school based telehealth and you will find the resources they are out
3: there and you can also reach out to me
1: thank you amanda and ruth
3: okay going fast so mental health really depends on people knowing what it is and what it takes to be mentally healthy so talk promotion inform yourself educate yourself speak to other people share your story and then Helping others increases your happiness and we all strive to feel happy all the time. It's one of the big goals that human beings try to find. So helping others increases happiness, whether that is talking to someone, offering help, smiling at someone, just being kinder. I think we can all go a long way.
0: This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station Virtual Event Series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www dot state dot gov.